So Zach, uh, I'm sure many of you know Zach from his work. Um, Zach wrote a, has written a couple of books. The first is called Unrapture. Yeah, if you ever want to know the day of the rapture, I have that information available. Uh, $49.95. Um, just see me in the back. No refunds. No, no, no refunds. <laughs> it is an investment. Yeah, but it's an investment in your soul. So sow a seed of faith this morning. <laughs> and your latest book is called God Briefed. Yeah, and it's pretty amazing. And um, <laughs> like the Bible, it is also God-breathed um, in the sense that it was written by a God-breathed person. Oh, see how I brought all that together? Boom, segue. that's the sermon. Thank you for coming. Thanks for being here. Go buy Zach's book. Um, so before we jump in, so what I want to talk about today, what we're going to have a conversation about um, is the Bible. And I realize that for lots of people, you, you hear that term Bible, and it creates lots of different feelings and emotions and thoughts. And we're going to speak to some of that before we jump in. Um, and I'll just do that real quick right now. Uh, so here's what you need to know, that nobody in this place today is going to be told you should read the Bible, because some of you shouldn't, um, because the Bible has been used in lots of harmful ways that have created trauma and pain. It's been weaponized and it's been used to mistreat people. And for some people, for some of us, the best thing we can do uh, is to distance ourselves and put some space between us and the Bible. Uh, to use an analogy that breaks down if you press it too far, probably, but it's kind of like whether or not you like pineapple and pizza. How many of you like pineapple and pizza? Okay, you're right. Um, <clears throat> now, here's the thing. Pineapple and pizza, I love it. 10 of 10 recommend. Not everybody does. I don't want to force everyone to eat pineapple on their pizza. The same thing is true of the Bible. For some people, it is so much, has so much baggage. It has been used in such a terrible, terrible way. And I think even the language used, like we use the Bible for stuff, is just icky. Would you agree? Like the, the Bible can be used. And so today, what we're not going to say is at the end of this, everybody gets a Bible, take it home with you, and now you're, you're, you're going to have to read it every day. What we want to offer is if you are still curious about the Bible, if you find it interesting, or maybe you have grief around the fact that it's been taken from you by the way it's been used against you, we would love to be able to say, maybe there's a way for us to come back to the Bible as progressive Christians. Um, and maybe it could still, because we're in this series rhythm, exploring spiritual practices for progressive Christians, maybe it's possible that the Bible could still be some sort of spiritual practice, just not in the way Maybe we were taught when you were doing your quiet times and trying to make sure you got enough of it read, right? Anybody grow up on quiet times? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so before we jump into that, though, Zach, when your book God Breathe came out, you, uh, you created an interesting billboard campaign right here in Nashville because you're from here. I am. I was, you're like a person who you're from here. I was born down the street, um, not literally a couple blocks over at... Um, what is now St. Thomas Midtown. When I was born, it was called Baptist Hospital. And uh, yeah, I'm one of those weirdos who actually grew up here and stayed here and um, went away for a little while, but I'm back and it's nice, but hot and got way more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're also doing things with billboards. And yeah, so I put up some billboards. First, I have to apologize. Um, I don't mean to brag, but I have some really amazing mandolin skills. And I was slicing potatoes last night, um, and my finger. And so uh, if it looks like I'm flipping you off, I'm not, unless you deserve it. Uh, and if <laughs> is that like a self, self-evaluation thing? It, it like, is. Yeah, so I just, deserve it. This is the Holy Spirit working through your hearts and minds this morning. <laughs> and if you were here earlier, I will be recycling all of my jokes. 
So if you're not famous, um, like Oprah, you are responsible for marketing your own book, which, as Josh will tell you, is the worst. Um, it's not fun. It's exhausting. You have to find a way to kind of break through the noise. And you want to try to find, you know, at least I do, a creative way that has something to do with your book. Um, and as, as Josh said, I grew up here. Um, I grew up in the buckle of the Bible belt, um, going to VBS and church camp and, you know, being the quintessential evangelical. Um, and I went on a load of, lot of road trips uh, up and down 65 and 40 and 24. Um, and even here in town, you see billboards everywhere. Um, and uh, a lot of them have similar messages like you're going to hell or um, you had an abortion. So you're going to hell. Or you're gay, so you're going to hell. And then a few, a few of them are nice, and they'll say, Jesus loves you, and now that you know that, you're going to hell too. <laughs> um, and so um, my book, God Breathe, is about trying to um, rethink the very foundations of Scripture. Rethink the Bible, rethink the role of the Bible, um, if it has any role at all. Um, I want to take um, assumptions that we have or no knowledge that we have at all about the Bible, but particularly those of us that grew up around it and think that we know it so well, and try to flip those on its head. And so what I did was take some of the uh, uh, material that I grew up with, wonderful billboards. Like my favorite one is in uh, outside of Birmingham on the I-65, and it says, go to church or the devil will get you. And it's got a little red devil with a pitchfork, if you know that one, it's, a, it's great. Uh, <laughs> so that's where this idea came from. Um, I, these, are the, I, these are the billboards that we ended up with. Um, and there's three different ones. They appeared um, right over here, just down 65, right past 100 Oaks. There's a digital billboard. Um, it took 72 different emails back and forth uh, to get to these because my first submissions um, were responded with a uh, hard no. That was the lawyer's uh, words, not mine. <laughs> um, and they were also deemed misleading and offensive, um, which I took, I was offended by that because I thought that they were very scripturally accurate um, and, and to the point. So for the first submission that I had said, uh, the GOP is full of sodomites. And so you, you hear that and you think sexuality, right? And, but I think that that definition is misleading and offensive because the Bible is clear. The Bible says in Ezekiel 16, 49, which is the passage that would have been under that, that the sin of Sodom um, was not welcoming the poor and not caring for the needy. And my experience with the Republican Party's policies in recent years is that that is an accurate biblical description. They said hard no. So that didn't make the cut. Um, the Bible is pro-choice also surprisingly did not make the cut. Um, I thought they would be super into abortion billboards because you see them everywhere, um, but only with one particular message. So I said the Bible is pro-choice, attached numbers five, which again, not misleading or in my case offensive because it's biblically accurate. Um, that's my proof text. The, uh, numbers five offers instructions for giving an abortion. The last one, um, when I finally gave up, just said um, the Bible is not the word of God. And underneath it said John 1, uh, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I, I don't know how to be more biblically faithful <laughs> than that, um, but the uh, Southern Baptist Convention apparently runs the legal counsel for Lamar uh, <laughs> advertising, and they told me no. So this is what we ended up with. Um, I actually like what we ended up with. Um, it it kind of gives a, a succinct capturing of the, of the book. So it's, it's fun and it's in jest, but, um, but each makes a point, and together I think that they make um, the point of the book. So the first one just says, it's okay to admit when the Bible is wrong. Um, and this was uh, an earth-shattering truth to me. Um, back in college, we 
we were sitting around and talking about one of those, you know, really heartfelt, um, inspiring stories from the Old Testament uh, in Deuteronomy that says, if you have a child who's unruly and bratty, um, take them outside the camp and stone them to death. Um, old school uh, discipline. And so I... Uh, old school. <laughs> please don't do that. Love your children. Um, but but I grew up thinking, oh, what the heck do I do with this passage? And then you have to come up with three... Oh, well, we're no, under, no longer under the law. We're under grace. Or, but that or, only works for some things, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's specific. You have yeah. to check Fox News first. But... <laughs> <laughs> the, the, thing, the thing is, we, we're sitting in this class, and we go around, and we try to offer all of our different mental gymnastics of, of how you deal with something so terrible. Um, and the professor finally looked at us and said, well, what if the Bible is just wrong? And he said, because if you read anywhere else in any other piece of literature, slaves obey your masters, for it is right in the Lord, you would say, that is wrong, and I want nothing to do with that Lord. Or if he said, women be silent in the church, or if we condemned LGBT people, or if you sent your kids outside of a camp to be stoned to death because they were spending too much time on their iPad, like, we would say that is wrong. And I think that in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, when Paul says, but we see through a mirror dimly, he is pointing to that very fact. And that was the first one that people didn't like. The second one that didn't get a lot of, um, God didn't write the Bible, people did, um, which to me is not a controversial thing. Um, I've learned that that is not the case for everyone. Um, <laughs> what I'm trying to get here is past the idea that I had of the Bible as this fully formed book that fell from heaven um, or that God maybe dictated uh, to someone uh, either audibly or in their head or, or whatever. Um, the idea that God didn't write the Bible um, was blasphemy to me. But that's what Romans 1 says. Um, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, write to you, blah, 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 blah. And he does this over and over and over yep. again, almost to make the point that it's like, hey, this is me talking and not always God. You know, I heard Bart Ehrman say once that the Bible may be inspired, but it has human fingerprints all over it. Well, that's good. It's a great line. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to put that in my next book. <laughs> um, so this last one um, went over like a lead balloon. And um, <laughs> it turns out, that folks who like to talk about good news are really invested in their neighbors going to hell. And, and they get really upset at the idea that their neighbors aren't going to hell. Um, even though John 3.17, which comes right after John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he did all those great things, um, John 3.17 follows it up and said, God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but through him that everyone may have everlasting life. And I like to take the Bible seriously. And I thought the Bible was clear that this idea of burning in hell for eternity isn't actually biblical. Um, but a lot of people were really upset about that. But the flip side of that was that a lot of people really appreciated it. And I got a lot of really, really um, overwhelming, honestly, feedback um, that was really positive and grateful from um, people who identified as atheist and, and agnostic. And what was so great about it wasn't that I was like converting them. We didn't, you know, go have a mass baptism down at the Cumberland River. They were just happy to hear good news. And I was growing, I was taught growing up that that's what we're supposed to do as Christians is to share good news. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for your disruptive, <laughs> You're welcome. creative, funny, wonderful work on that. Um, so here, here's the thing: as we jump into thinking about we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get to the question: Can should the Bible be a spiritual practice for progressive Christians? Uh, before that, I think we just need to acknowledge that the Bible is most often the elephant in the room, 
especially if you live here in the South, right? The Bible is the elephant in the room in every conversation. So whether you're talking about religion or politics or economics, anything you're talking about, often looming right behind it is the Bible. And somebody will often quote the Bible as a proof text for why their whole thing makes sense and why their thing is right and justifiable, right? I'm going to exclude all these people because it says blank here. Marcus Borg, one of my favorite Jesus scholars, and this is a paraphrase, but he said something like, that conflict over how to understand what the Bible is and how it should be read is the single greatest issue dividing Christians today. And I think that's true. I mean, you would think it's, well, is it LGBTQ plus inclusion? No. Is it atonement theory? No. It, it is way more uh, deeply rooted than that. It is, what is the Bible? And then how should we read it or interpret it? Like, what is it? Did it fall out of the sky? Is it inerrant and fallible? Is it the word of God? Or is it something else altogether? And it's not even, what is it in those terms? It's like, what is the Bible? How many books are in it? Because if you ask a Catholic how many books are in the Bible, their number is going to be different than a Protestant. But if you ask somebody in the Ethiopian Tawahito church, they have like 80 plus books in their canon. So when we say the Bible... Um, depending on who's hearing it, they're not hearing, we're not all saying the same thing. And so it's like, we're, we're not all speaking a, a similar language. We don't understand whatever this thing is to be the same thing. So we can't even get into how it's translated or interpreted because we're, we're stuck at, what even is it? Yeah, and that's what I'm trying to get at with with God read this. You know, that's a passage that is is so evocative um, and so fundamental to fundamentalism. And a lot of what I'm trying to do, you know, with the billboard campaign, which is not up, so I don't even know why I'm pointing at the screen now, um, is is to to flip those assumptions upside down. And so when I I read, and I think when a lot of us read, but when I read growing up, um, all things are. I'm sorry. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correction, rebuke, and, and so on and so on. Um, for me, that meant that the entire Bible was perfect, right? Because God is perfect, therefore the Bible is perfect. Well, the f- first problem there is that when, like you were saying um, online this week, if the Bible is perfect and God is perfect, then Bible and God become interchangeable, right? And they're the same thing. And so what has happened is that we have elevated this book into the Godhead. And so really, fundamentalism and inerrancy aren't just theologically incorrect. I mean, they're blasphemy because we're Mm. worshiping a book, but not just that. We're worshiping our own interpretation. And so we've done the very thing that Paul says to do when we put ourselves in the place of God and we have sanctified our interpretation as the word of God. And so what we're we're trying to do with with God breathe is to rethink this very image because what what it means to be God breathe doesn't, it's not this literary mechanism. It's not this magic trick that God does in the heads of the writers, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. But what is it? Because Paul doesn't say. The way that he, he uses this word theonoustos, that's the Greek, um, is very almost flippant. It's offhand. And he uses it with Paul or with Timothy as if he just assumes that Timothy knows what it means. But we don't because it, it's a word that only appears once in the New Testament. Um, it's not something that's commonly used. Paul kind of did this sometimes. He would make up his own words and turns of phrase. Well, in seminary, they taught me to look at context, right? We always talk about how context is important. Well, we were kind of out of luck in in Timothy because there's no context that explains this word. But there is context in the broader 
um, story of the Bible. And it's found in Genesis 2 when God takes dust from the ground and God breathes life into it. And so what I hear when I see um, Paul talk about the Bible being God-breathed is the same sort of thing that Paul's talking about when he says, we see now through a mirror dimly, is that, that just like the Bible, we are God-breathed, and yet we are not perfect. And that's okay, because you don't need perfection to communicate truth, right? I mean, your parents still teach you true things, even though they're not always perfect. My, my kids are fortunate. <laughs> Um, but I mean, you know, I, I think one of the struggles that we have, and we were talking about this earlier, is, is just what we, what we think the Bible is and what it, what it exists, what it, why it even exists. And for a lot of us, it exists as a how-to guide for me to save my soul from hell, right? Because we've been conditioned or we've been taught, if you grew up in evangelicalism, that the whole key to life is to go to heaven. And the key to going to heaven is to say the right prayer and believe the right things. Sola fide. We are saved by faith alone. But the problem with that idea is that it reduces Christianity to nothing more than right ideas and to right thinking. And when that happens, it doesn't really matter ultimately how I treat my neighbor. Because it's not what gets me in heaven, and all I care about is getting into heaven. And so with, with the idea of the God Breathe um, book, but even this passage, is that, that God is saying, we need a better imagination. We need to get back to the bare bones of, of what this is and, and why it exists. And, and it's not a how-to guide. It's, it's not a history book. It's not a science book. It's not yeah. a list of facts or, or laws. It's a story to, to, to read and to love and, most importantly, to live into you know, we're conditioned, I think, to believe that that myth and truth are polar opposites. That if something is a myth, then it has to be false, right? That that's what that means. And so, when we come to that, with bring that mentality of the Bible and couple it with the idea that this is a book of facts that I need to memorize and learn so that I can go to heaven, the entire house of cards begins to fall down once we say the Bible isn't perfect. But if we can change that foundation and remember that actually myth does this really amazing thing that facts can't do, because history, the facts of history are bound by a particular time and place, circumstances and language, but myth, myth can tell stories that transcend time and space and culture. And myth has the power to tell truth in ways that history doesn't. In ways like Icarus. If I say the name Icarus, we all know that name. We know the story of the guy who put on wings and flew too close to the sun, and we all know that it's not true. Except it is. <laughs> because hubris and arrogance and pride and the lessons that he learned are all true. And I think if we can reimagine the Bible and move it away from this, this, this list of beliefs to get us to heaven and instead begin to think of it as a story told by imperfect people like us, that is just trying to sing the tell the same truth that God is love and who God is at God's most core is this loving community that we have been invited into, then maybe the Bible has a chance to, to be a book of life again instead of a weapon of death. Yeah. Um, has anybody seen the billboard that says, has an acrostic, it says Bible, it's basic instructions before leaving earth? I mean, that's sort of what you're describing. Like, we, we have boiled down this um, and I like what you, the idea you use. We often call the Bible a library, but Zach talks about the Bible as an anthology because it's not just a library, it's this curated library. Um, and so like we've boiled it down to this escape hatch. Uh, and in doing so, what we've 
we've done with our interpretations is we've sort of just, the whole point of the Bible, um, anybody done this thing where you, um, you say something and then like 15 people named Chad show up and are telling you why, like, have you read? Like my favorite thing, I bet you get this too, because I was talking to our friend Colby Martin and, um, you know, he, he wrote Unclobber where he deals with the clobber. And if your name's Chad, I'm sure you're one of the good ones. So just own that. Um, but he says, like, people are like, yeah, yeah, have you read Romans 1? He's like, yes, I've read Romans 1. Yes, I've read 2 Timothy. Yes, I'm aware of these texts. That's not what the Bible's for. It's, it's not, um, I often talk about reading the Bible ransom letter style is how people often do it. Um, you know, ransom letters in old movies where they would have a drawer full of, like, cut out letters just in case, and they would piece them together. That's how we've treated the Bible. Um, and it really is about a mechanism of, of proving our rightness and then being able to judge and condemn everybody else based on our interpretations. And um, no wonder, no wonder so many people walk away from the Bible feeling wounded. And I love the Bible, and yes, depending on who's quoting it, I can just cringe. Yeah, I, I wrote a post a long time ago, saying, and I still believe this, I, I almost wish the Bible verses had never been created. Um, you may not be familiar with this, but Bible verses are a relatively modern invention. They were created uh, or invented in around the 13th, 14th century, depending on your sources. Um, and, and they were made with good intentions, right? I mean, it's, it's to, to make the Bible more accessible and easier to read. Because if you read the original, well, not the original, we don't have those, but like if you read ancient uh, Greek manuscripts, it's just a run-on. There's no punctuation. There's no space. All capital letters. All capital letters. Um, You're guessing what words are. Exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. and I'm not a good guesser. And so the punctuation helps. The, you know, the breaks in the paragraphs help. The, the chapters and verses can help because we can get to 2 Timothy 3.16. But the flip side of that is they also become bullets in a gun. Right. I mean, you, you're really almost quite literally just creating the ammunition with which to turn the Bible into a weapon because you don't need the context. You don't need the story. All that matters are those little facts, those little verses, and you can rip them out and make them say whatever, whatever you like. You want. Yeah, and that's, you know, when you decontextualize something, you really can just sort of mold it and shape it into whatever thing and then attack whoever you want based on your interpretation. Yeah, I, one of my professors, um, same guy that talked about the Bible being wrong, I, I thought put it well. He's like, you know, the Bible doesn't necessarily say anything, right? Like, that's an incoherent statement. It makes no sense. The Bible is 66 different books written by a variety of different authors over a whole host of, of centuries and, and contexts. I mean, the Bible is, is like you said, it's, it's a library. It's, it's a curated anthology. It's, it's a particular story that the writers are going to be telling or trying to tell. And just like if you or I witnessed a crime um, and there was five or six of us that witnessed the same thing with our, with our own eyes, we're still going to give five or six slightly different accounts, right? And so um, that's what we see in the Bible and why those contradictions don't have to be something that we're afraid of. There's something to be, to be embraced, you know, because it's a hallmark of God trusting us to tell this story, of us being these imperfect God-breathed people telling this God-breathed imperfect story and yet telling, the tr- telling good news. But, that, but that's the catch is what you're saying is that what happens is the Bible doesn't say anything, but it gives us the language to say anything. And so like that is when it becomes dangerous because if we're not guided by love, if our foundation isn't this call to love, then that's exactly where we're going to end up every time. Because what happens, like we said before, is we have all these nice, neat little bullets already created for us and we can pick out any of them and we can say, 
The Bible is clear. Don't get mad at me. I'm just saying what God is saying. How many of y'all heard that before? Right? And what happens? The, the collective groan that just got let out. In the <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. But when we say that, when we try to remove ourselves from the equation of biblical interpretation, all we're doing is sanctifying our own ideas and our own beliefs. And they may be good. Some of, you know, just because we're doing that doesn't make they're all bad. You know, I think it's a great thing to love and care for your neighbor. But I think that, and it's informed by the Bible and the Bible shapes my faith. But this is a story that I've been invited into, invited into and to participate and even to continue to tell. Because we, we don't live after Revelation. We live between Jude and Revelation. And the story of Scripture is continuing to be told, right? I, I love the exercise of, you know, if you could add something to the Bible, what would it be? And like, for me, the answer to that is Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Because if there's anything that needs to be heard today, it's, it's white moderate Christians need to be told, or need to be called out for caring more about the absence of tension than the presence of justice. Yeah. And I would, I would love to add that letter. I can't, but what I can do is I can live out that letter because all of our lives are part of this story of the people of God. And so even though we can't physically add stuff to the Bible, we continue to tell the story with our lives. And I think that if we can begin to think of it that way as a conversation, as something that that we are called to participate in, then maybe the Bible is something that might be worth reading. Yeah, I mean, if we can make the shift from seeing the Bible as this answer book that is telling us how to live our lives in every possible scenario, which it just clearly isn't. And we can allow the Bible to be the, our ancient spiritual ancestors bearing witness to their own experience of God. Then it becomes something different, right? It becomes something that we can enter into and participate in. And I'm so glad you brought up this idea of contradictions. One of the questions people ask me is, like, you care about the Bible so much, but doesn't it bother you that there are contradictions in the Bible? Um, and look, there, there are some things that are just glaringly not aligned, right? Like um, there are lots of things that show up twice and we're given different reasons for them or completely different names for them. There are stories. We have two creation stories. We have two Noah's Ark stories that have been kind of jammed together. The same thing happens to Abraham multiple times in different places with different names. Moses, what's the name of his father-in-law? Is it Ruel or is it Jethro? I prefer Jethro, but that's just because the Beverly Hillbillies. Like... (laughs) There are all sorts of contradictions in there. One of my favorites is, uh, I love to, I'm great at parties. You would have, you would not believe how great I am at parties because this is the kind of question I ask if we're at a party. Who killed Goliath? And deep down, you know, yeah, you think, and, but you know, you know it's a trick question, right? Because it can't be that simple. Well, yeah, so sure. Who killed Goliath? David. First Samuel. Did you know at the end of Second Samuel, there's all this extra content? In, in the extra content, it's talking about David's mighty warriors, and it says somebody else killed Goliath. And so is it possible that David is getting credit for somebody else's kill? Wouldn't the Bible storybooks look different if it weren't David on the front, but like a guy named Bob, just like with his sling ready to go? I mean, it's a different sort of story. And here's the translators of the certain translations are so uncomfortable with this disjointedness. Like, for example, the NIV translates that the brother of Goliath, but there ain't no brother of in the Hebrew. It just says Goliath. So what do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that in Isaiah, it says, beat your swords into plowshares? How many of you are on board with that one? Yeah, good one. What about in Joel, where it says, beat your plowshares into swords? And don't you know, there's the guy who just got done beating his swords into plowshares. And he gets the memo, and he's like, you've got to be kidding me. I just did the other. 
Which is it? Which is it? And I think that's the point. The Bible is a conversation happening with our spiritual ancestors. And, you know, one more example. I, I love the book of Ruth so much because the book of Ruth is making this bold claim that through a foreigner from Moab, Israel's greatest king was born through her becoming part of the family, through her faithfulness. At the same time, when Ruth was probably written, Ezra and Nehemiah were doing these reforms that said, if you have married a foreign wife, especially somebody from Moab, you need to get rid of her and the children that you have with her because we have to remain pure. Which is it? Is it the assertion of Ezra and Nehemiah or is it the counter-assertion of the writer of Ruth who says, actually, God's done some of God's best work through people you would not imagine would be part of the family tree. Like that's what's happening in the Bible. It is a converse. And whoever made the, I mean, there was no council that made the decision. That's a you know, popular myth, but a bad myth, not a good myth. There are good myths. Um, but just this idea that, that our spiritual ancestors, when the Bible is coalescing, saw the differences and did not feel compelled to solve it for us, but instead invited us into the conversation. Yeah, I, that's exactly, you know, a point that I try to hit on um, from the beginning is that, you know, this stuff isn't heresy, you know. And I know I'm sure there's folks that might grab the clip and say, look at these two liberal progressives. I mean, this guy literally has heretic tattooed on his body. Um, they're just sprouting, you know, or spouting heresies. But the truth is, the stuff that we're talking about is this is ancient, um, is the church itself. One of my favorite church fathers was a North African bishop named Origen. Um, and Origen is really big about getting past the literal and down to the spiritual truth. Because um, he says there's two senses to scripture. There's the literal words on the page and there's the spiritual truth deep down that God is trying to teach us. And so he goes, goes even further and he says that the Holy Spirit allows what he calls stumbling blocks to be in scripture, things that make no sense, things that are contradictions, things that are troubling, that are challenging. And the reason why is so that we get drawn deeper into the spiritual truth that God is trying to tell us. Like, I wish I had heard that when I was young and a kid, because for me, what I hear in the words of origin is permission, is freedom, freedom to ask questions, freedom to wrestle, freedom to push back, freedom to even disagree. Because another guy that comes after him named Augustine, who you may have heard of, um, he's also a North African bishop. North African Christianity is radically, incredibly influential um, on the early birth of the church, and we should talk more about that. Um, but Origen, or Augustine follows Origen about a century later, and he comes up with this not at all radical idea because he's just plagiarizing Jesus. And he says that when you come to Scripture, no matter how great you think your interpretation is, how awesome you are at, you know, ancient Greek or linguistics, no, how, no matter how insightful you think that your exegesis is. If your reading of scripture doesn't lead you to love God and love neighbor, then you're wrong, mm. period. But, and this is just Jesus, because the teachers of the law come and, and they ask him, well, what is the greatest commandment? And what they're asking him is, what is the foundation of the faith? What is the most important thing above all others? And for them, in that particular context, it's, it's almost the same kind of thing as Christian fundamentalism. What do we need to do to get to heaven? And Jesus says, "There's um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And we all know that, and then kind of ignore that last little bit at the end because we're no longer under law, we're under grace. So that bit about all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands kind of gets lost, but it's the most critical part of that, or at least as equally critical, because what Jesus is saying is everything else that you read in Scripture has to be guided by this 
this call to love. And so when I hear Origen embracing the imperfections of Scripture because it's a story written by all kinds of people, and I hear Origen, or Origen, Augustine say, if you're not leading, if this isn't leading um, you to love your neighbor, you're wrong. And then I hear Jesus saying, yeah, (laughs) that's the whole point. For me, I find a lot of liberation and freedom in that because I can look at a passage that says, you know, if your children are being really annoying, take them outside and murder them and say, that's not great, you know? Or I can look at a passage that says, slaves obey your masters for it's right in the Lord and say, no, Paul was wrong. That's a terrible idea. Or I can look at any other passage that I once found problematic and needed to reconcile and say, no, because what I'm called to above all others is to love my neighbor. And if this doesn't lead me to love my neighbor, then it's okay to say, Paul was wrong because Paul himself would say that because he says it over and over again. We see now through a mirror dimly. And mirror is, is not just, isn't a piece of glass that you look through. I always looked at that passage as like a window passage mm-hmm. so that we, okay, I just can't really figure out the mysteries of the Bible. And if I just knew a little bit better, I can make all of this work and smooth out the contradictions. But that's not what he's saying at all because that's not how mirrors work. We all mirrors, they reflect back on us. And what I see in that is, is a challenge, but also like a hopeful reminder that even the biblical writers didn't get it right all the time. Yeah. I mean, the entire book of Judges is essentially dedicated to the confession that in those days there was no king in Israel and they all did right was what was right in their own eyes. And then all the judges go and do that and they do terrible things in the name of God and they put terrible words in the mouth of God and then it ends with that same line, in those days there was no king of Israel and they all did what was right in their own eyes. And what I see in that story is a story of us. It's a story of scripture. It's a story of people that try to do the right thing but screw up constantly. And so I find beauty in the imperfections of scripture, even in the contradictions and even lessons in the terrible stuff that it teaches because it reminds me that these were imperfect people too and I'm an imperfect people. And if they're God-breathed and this is God-breathed and I'm God-breathed, then maybe there's a place for me in the story of God too. Woo. Yeah. 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 You know, it's interesting how we assume everything in the Bible is prescriptive. When sometimes maybe it's just being descriptive. Like, look what, look what happened. No, the part about the bears killing the teenagers for making fun of Elijah for being bald, that, that is very prescriptive and, and literal. <laughs> so, you know, so, so if we, all that assumed, if we think about how the Bible can be engaged in spiritual practice, if that's something people are interested in and open to, if you feel a longing to do that. I think it begins with understanding that really what we see in the Bible is this, our spiritual ancestors saying, this is our experience of God. And this is our experience over time of of understanding, our understanding of God shifting. So if you were to try to say, this is who God is, and, and try to trace that through the entirety of the Bible. By the way, in the Bible, God is a character. And I'm not saying, oh, there's no God. What I'm saying is, in the Bible, we see the reality of God filtered through human perspective. It changes over time. Now, there's this, and I think it's accidental anti-Semitism, but it's even accidental anti-Semitism is harmful, so we need to call it out. But there's this sort of trope within Christianity that, well, the Old Testament God was really cranky, but then once God was able to kill Jesus, then God was kind of nice to everybody. But I think there would be people who would beg to differ. I think Ananias and Sapphira, who God killed because they didn't give enough to the church offering, that's the story we should have used back during the giving thing. That would have been way more. 
Um, right? Like this, the God who kills somebody for not giving enough to the church offering, I think they would go, I don't know that that God is much nicer than the God that did some other stuff, right? Or the God behind the vision of the, the John the Revelator who, who wrote the book of Revelation. That God, is that God really nice? I mean, the blood up to the horse's bridles? I don't think that's a very uh, compassionate image of God. And what we see is this, this back and forth, this, this wrestling with who is God? And we see our spiritual ancestors at times taking two steps forward and at times taking steps backward, but wrestling with, and, and it's on this arc, this trajectory, and it seems like the overwhelming understanding is over time we have to let go of, and I think this is what's happening in the Abraham and Isaac story, right? Where God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son and Abraham says, okay, and then they go and he's going to do it. And then there's a record scratch and a God using a different name interrupts and says, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, that's not how I do things. And it's this invitation to think differently about God. When for so many of us, the Bible has always been the thing that is reinforcing our understanding of God, but it actually could be saying, um, what, th- this is all past tense, right? Um, this is their trajectory. This is their journey with God. So that we then have uh, at least some understanding so we can have our own which at times will take us, uh, most always take us off the page and into our own real world experiences, which is where we actually meet the divine. So the Bible is, is not the swimming pool. The Bible is the diving board, if that makes sense. The Bible is the place we spring from, but it, it shouldn't be the limiter. Another way I'd say it is, you know, you, you mentioned earlier to separate God and the Bible, right? God is not the Bible. The Bible is not God. The Bible's job is to point it's a signpost that says, hey, your spiritual ancestors kind of found God in the world and in themselves this way, on this journey and this trajectory. Now go and do likewise. Um, and, and one final thing, and then I'll take a breath and you can respond. Um, but uh, one of my gateway to, to progressive theology, believe it or not, was a writer, a scholar named N.T. Wright. Um, and I don't quote him often anymore. We've, we've kind of gone different directions theologically. But he had this image of, Imagine if somebody dis- discovered an unfinished Shakespearean play. And uh, how do, what do you do with this unfinished play? He says, one of the things you can do is you bring together actors and Shakespearean scholars and people who know Shakespeare, and then you create the end of the play in the tradition of Shakespeare, right? Like there's still work to be done. And I, I think that's our invitation, right? I, I think our invitation is, hey, look at what happened here. This is not the limiter, of your experience of the divine. This sort of gives you like, here, here are some, some uh, hints and guesses about how the divine works. Now go into the world, have your experiences and continue that journey and that trajectory. Yeah, that's kind of the irony of the book of Revelation. You get to the end and there's that famous, famous passage about not adding any words to this text. And so we read that retroactively as meaning the entire Bible, um, which is kind of, kind of nonsensical because you know, we don't live after Revelation. We live between June and Revelation. And, you know, the nerdy part of me says, well, that really has to do with how apocryphal literature was written in the early first century. And he wanted to make sure that nobody else, you know, was stealing his Revelation and blah, 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 blah. Um, Pre-copyright law. Right, right. Um, But there was no Bible for him to refer to in 90 AD or whenever he wrote that. You know, there's a whole world that happens between that last letter to June and Revelation and that, that world is our lives. I mean, we are continuing to add words to the story, to add pages to the story of the Bible, you know, not with 
with, with letters or plays or books or things like that, but with how we live. Because the book of Josh and the book of Zach and the book of Mary, the book of whoever, each one of our lives is, is a testimony of who we are and what we believe, whether we intentionally do that or not. And so for me, like, it's this invitation is, is so freeing and so liberating. And it also speaks to the great irony of, of fundamentalism to me. And it's twofold. And, and one of the first irony is, is kind of something that you alluded to a minute ago. It's that whole, what do we do with the Old Testament? You know, what do we do with the Hebrew Bible? Well, like the Hebrew Bible tells a story of Israel. And Israel gets its name from a guy named Israel, and his name was Jacob, but it became Israel because he wrestled with God. And you have this entire book that's about wrestling with God, asking questions, pushing back, doubting, disagreeing, and literally wrestling with God, and yet we've made no space for doubt. Because certainty has become the key to salvation, and so doubt is sin and must be damned. But the other irony of fundamentalism is that fundamentalism, as the name suggests, is trying to capture the most fundamental parts of the faith, or at least the faith for who profess it. You know, So when they come together in 1910 um, in Atlantic City with the Presbyterian Church, this is where inerrancy is first adopted formally, um, they come together and they have what's called the five fundamentals. And I'm not going to pretend to remember the other four because they're not as important to my book and I just need to sell books. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but these are fundamental things like Jesus Christ died for our sins, God made the world, and then you get to the Bible. And the one about the Bible is that the Bible, you know, is inerrant. And the irony is that even though the list of five fundamentals has been added to and expanded for decades now, there's one fundamental that is never, ever, ever listed in their fundamentals of the Christian faith, and it's love. And if we don't begin with that foundation of love, then the book is, the Bible is only ever going to be a weapon of death. But if we can begin with that foundation of love, because it is a God who breathed life into us so that we could participate in this great story of love and know that our finish line is bringing that love down to earth as it is in heaven, that we don't have to bind ourselves to contradictions and, and, and inconsistencies and just terrible ideas because that's not what the story is about. Yeah. The story is about being called into this Trinitarian life, if I can get nerdy. In the Eastern Church, um, Eastern Orthodoxy, they're, they're really into the Trinity a lot more than I think most of us are, because what they see in it is a representation, not just of the life of God or some weird theological puzzle, but the life we've been called into. Because what they see is, is a God who fundamentally is loving communion. And so the idea in the Eastern Orthodox Church is that we're not just saved to go to heaven, but they have something called theosis, so that we, Athanasius and other early church fathers, said that God became like us so that we could become like God. And so what we see in this, this, this very God who created us is an invitation for us, imperfect as we are, to join in this loving community and then blow out that loving breath to the world, and you don't need to be perfect to love. Yeah. Thank goodness. Um, So let's wrap up with this. Sort of our North Star around here at Grace Point is human flourishing. That's the question we ask. Does this lead to human flourishing? What a freeing gift to be able to read the Bible and go, does that lead to human flourishing? Okay, then that part's not for me. Does that lead to human flourishing? Yeah, let's grab that and bring it with us. Um, So can the Bible be? Yeah, I think it can be a practice if you find it meaningful and if it helps you pursue human flourishing. If it doesn't, it is okay to break up with the Bible because Jesus and the Bible aren't the same thing anyway. 
You can be a devout follower of Jesus, seeking to embody his love and compassion in the world and not read the Bible. Or you can be that very thing and find meaning and inspiration in the Bible. Um, It really depends on, I think, what it does for you and how it transforms you and how it helps you. Are you with me? Yeah. Can we thank Zach for being here? Thank you.